On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Scout. And Scout was raised in a dysfunctional home, which set the stage for entering her abusive marriage. It's a story about codependency, perfectionism, and the inspirational healing process of being good enough on your own. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, a podcast that gives a voice to survivors of narcissistic abuse. I am Brandon Chadwick, but my friends call me Chad, and thanks for tuning into this episode. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. It is that simple. And now, before we get to our episode with Scout, I just wanted to thank everyone in the Narcissist Apocalypse community for listening to the show and sharing your thoughts by email, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. A big shout out to our friends in our Narcissist Apocalypse Facebook support group for being a great group of people. So hello to all of you out there. Also, a reminder, if you have not left us a review on whatever podcast service you use, Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, CastBox, etc., etc., Leave us a five-star written review as it helps out the show when it comes to rankings. Now, if you want to be a part of our show, please go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. That's right, NarcissistApocalypse.com, and fill out the guest form, and we'll go from there. But the quickest way to be part of the show is to also go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. That's right, NarcissistApocalypse.com. And to read a letter to your narcissist and be a part of our Letters to Our Narcissist compilation episode, we have a voicemail recorder on our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. It's on the right side of the page, and it's always floating around, and it is hard to miss. The button says, Send Voicemail. Press it, and away you'll go. We are accumulating these letters to have a volume three of that episode. So send in those voicemails. If you want me or my old pal, Melissa, to read your letter instead, just send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. And last thing before we get started, our new podcast, Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, is now available for your listening pleasure. Our first two episodes have been released. The first is with Julie L. Hall, where we discuss the role of scapegoats in the family. And the second one was with licensed professional counselor Debbie Tudor. And we discuss adult children of narcissistic parents and her brilliant and I say brilliant because it really is a brilliant method, her brilliant third method of contact called Protected Contact. It's a great episode. Both episodes are fantastic. We've got really good feedback so far. And an upcoming episode that will be out later this week will be about the authentic self versus the fake self. And in this episode, yes, are you ready for this? In this episode, we deep dive into my own fake self for everyone to hear. I'm really, I was nervous about doing it and we did it. I, it was with an episode with Claudia Sine Mosias and 
you know, if you want to hear about all my insecurities, you got to go and subscribe to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A and get ready for it later this week. And everyone, the other thing, all these therapists and coaches that have been on the Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A can be found at abusetherapy.org. That is correct. Abusetherapy.org. So if you're looking for a therapist or a coach, please do go to abusetherapy.org. It helps out the show a lot by using the therapists and the coaches that are on there. So if you want to support the show, please use abusetherapy.org. And now it's time for me to get out of my own way. Here is my conversation with Scout. Welcome to this week's episode of Narcissist Apocalypse with me. Today, we have Scout. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I am good. And thank you for being here and sharing your story with us today. And I'm just going to get out of your way and give you the floor to tell your story. All right. Um, So I'll start with my childhood um, just to give a good background. Um, I was... One of four kids. Um, the my brothers and I are pretty close in age. My parents had my little sister quite a few years after the three of us, um, and we were raised very Catholic. Um, I wouldn't say like Orthodox, but we did go to church every single Sunday as a family. Um, my grandparents on both sides, so my parents' parents were all uh, Catholic. Um, or converted to Catholicism. Some of my uncles were Catholic priests. Um, my great aunt was a nun. Um, so from a very, very Catholic family. Um, and going to church every Sunday, that was just something that we did. It's something I did my whole life. My siblings and I all had our, we were all baptized. We all had our first communion. Um, we were all, at least I was confirmed when I turned 16. Um, so it was definitely something that was important. It wasn't something that I necessarily enjoyed, um, at least when I was a kid that, you know, you don't want to go to school or you don't want to go to church every single Sunday. It's a little boring. You're stuck there for an hour when you could be doing something else. Um, so that was how my childhood was, was just that. And then we were um, a really tight-knit family, at least how it looked from the outside and how I remember it. There was always a lot of conflict. Um, my father was, um, he was a great dad. I get along with him fantastically. Um, my mom and I never really got along. Um, in my opinion, she favored my brothers. So I had two brothers, the older one and my younger one, I was in the middle. Um, my mom really favored my two brothers, um, and I think that just stems from how she was raised by her parents. My mom was the youngest of six. Um, so she, and she was pretty young compared to her other siblings. So she was just kind of like afterthought would probably be a bad idea, but I think that's kind of how she viewed it. Um, and so leftover trauma from her childhood kind of came into my life and she put a lot of it on me. Um, so I was a straight A student. I was, um, top 10 in my graduating class in high school. I got into 
every university that I wanted to get into when I graduated high school. Um, and my whole life with my relationship with my mom was how can I be good enough for her? What do I have to do that would be good enough? It wasn't, I was never told that I was good enough just the way that I was just because I was her daughter or a human or anything like that. Um, it was, how can you perform to be good enough for your mom? How can you do better than your older brother who didn't do well in school, wasn't a good student. Teachers would call home all the time for him. And I don't want to say he wouldn't get in trouble, but he would be, it wouldn't be the same ramifications for him that it would be for me if I did the same thing. And so, especially because I was two years behind my older brother, every teacher that he had, they already had preconceived notions about me being a bad student or me not doing my work. And so I would not only have to, again, perform well, but I would have to be a perfectionist or go above and beyond just to get these teachers to see, oh, she's not the same as her brother. And we had a unique last name. So it's like <laughs> they knew that I, I couldn't pull the, no, we're not related at all. And my parents were teachers in that same district. So everybody knew our family. Um when I, was, when I, sorry yeah. to interrupt, when I was in high school, uh, my older sibling also had a reputation uh, as well. And I remember I was in grade nine and I was in a class, it was called typing or something like that. It was, it was just some a class for, uh, it was like a fluff kind of class. And the teacher goes, uh, is this person your brother? And I said... Uh, that depends. And th- she said, what does it depend on? I go, did you like him or not? And she goes, I didn't like him. I go, then I'm not his brother. <laughs> and I dropped the class. Exactly. The, I dropped the class the next day and I took accounting instead. Yeah. And that's the exact same experience that I had. And so it's um, really my whole childhood, uh, as I view it now, a lot of it was me overperforming or trying to be a perfectionist just to get people to see me because I wasn't taught that my worth came from me just because I'm alive. I'm a living, breathing human. I was taught that unless you do things better than everybody else, you're not good enough. Um, if I got a B on a paper, it wasn't good enough. I was asked, well, how come you didn't get an A? Um, and so that was a lot. And I remember in fourth grade, um, sitting at our dining room, table doing homework just like breaking down crying like at 11 o'clock at night because I had so much homework and I couldn't get it done and this is in fourth grade I just it it was ridiculous and this memory is so prominent in my brain um just because it was one of the many examples of when I just like could not feel good enough um so come high school um my one of my cousins on my dad's side, she got divorced. She had kids who were young. And I remember my mom getting so upset by it and just being like, you never get divorced until your kids are out of high school. How dare you leave your kids? Cause she left and moved somewhere else. Um, and my mom was so upset by it. And so in my adolescent brain, I was like, Oh, okay. Like this will never happen to our family ever. Um, Pretty soon after that, so when I was 15, um, my parents were going through something weird, and I didn't know what was happening. I don't think anyone knew what was happening, um, at least in as, as kids. And 
I just remember my dad came home one day and was crying and my mom didn't really like console him or anything. It was a bizarre experience. And he just had this conversation with me, just me and him, because I was really close with my dad um, because I could, I felt like I could tell him anything my whole life. He didn't get mad at me the way that my mother did. I only remember him spanking me one time in my whole life, like my mom did it all the time. Um, so I was, I felt safe with him compared to my other parent. And, um, he had this weird conversation with me when I was like 15, just he and I about like, it was almost like you have this one life, you need to live it. Family's all that matters. And I didn't know where it was coming from. And then I want to say a couple weeks later or something, I woke up one morning and my dad was screaming at my mom in the living room. And my sister at this time was like four, three or four years old. So I went out, I woke up and I went to go get her. And my dad just runs out of the front door and looks at my mom and is like, tell her what you did. And I was like, what is going on? So I sat on the couch and my mom just put her hand on my knee and she was like, I have feelings for someone else, but I didn't act on them. And so I just got up and I ran after my dad who had walked like all the way around the block and he was so upset. Um, and I always, I didn't have probably the healthiest relationship with him either because at some points I felt like I was his caretaker, um, like emotionally, not with money or financially or anything like that. Um, but I went and I talked to him and he just explained kind of everything that had happened. Um, and so he just, uh, was crying and I was there with him. And then everything between that is kind of a blur. Um, I know that I, everybody in my family took sides. It was not a healthy divorce. It was not a healthy, um, situation for the kids or for them. Um, and so we all, my brothers favored my mom and like moved out with my mom. I stayed with my dad and my little sister was young. So she would go in between houses, but every day after that was just my dad crying all the time. He lost a bunch of weight. He was from what he said, he was blindsided by this all happening. And I was so mad. And I don't ever remember being this mad before this point in my life. Um, so, at this point, you are living with your dad. You do you get along with your siblings, your your brothers, or are you guys no, alienated? So that, exactly. Yeah. So it kind of became something where my brothers and I were always like off and on of if we would get along or not. Um, and my older brother, he would be the one who would take me to school in the morning. And I remember one morning while the divorce was in, like, we were in the middle of it. Um, my brother, he would, it would be cold in the morning on the way to school. He'd roll all the windows down. He wouldn't put the heater on, so I would have to be cold on the way to school. And if I said something, he would yell at me or make it worse, so I w couldn't say anything. Then he would drop me off at school, and one time we were almost late. And obviously it's me. I didn't want to be late. So I said, hey, like, we're late to school. And he kicked me out of the car in the middle of the parking lot, like in front of people we knew and friends and stuff. And he was like, get the F out of my car, like calling me names. Um, 
And so I was, there was a lot of emotional abuse from him to me um, during this whole thing. And then he took me home one day um, or he was supposed to take me home one day. He ended up driving me to my grandparents' house. So my mom's parents' house. Um, and he just left me in the car in front of their house. And instead of me saying anything, I was like, well, maybe if I don't say anything and I just sit here, like he's just going to come back in the car and he'll take me home. I was trying to think of best case scenario because I knew if I said, Hey, why are you taking us to granny's? He would have made my life worse in some way. Like he would have figured out some way to be like, Oh, well now we're going to stay here forever and you have to walk home or something like that. So he never walked out, but my grandmother walked out and she would came outside and I was just sitting in the car and she said, how dare you? You're so selfish. Like, because it's my mother's mom and I wasn't living with my mom. I wasn't talking to my mom. And obviously I was extremely upset by my mom because this whole situation had blindsided me because of how my mom had professed, like, we're a Catholic family. We don't do this. You wait till your kids are out of school, et cetera, et cetera. You stay with the person you marry for your whole life. That's how I was raised. Um, And so I was just stuck outside with my grandmother telling me how horrible of a person I was, and I was only, like, 15 years old. Um, So so I got out of the car, and I had to walk home. (laughs) So right here... We you we pretty much established that in in a way you've grown up uh, codependent in a sense of you're yeah. you're trying to appease people uh, the situation here with your brother you're being emotionally abused but yet you're not fighting back and these behaviors are already now ingrained in you because of what you've dealt with at your home you're also even though your relationship isn't bad with your dad you're still caretaking your dad so you're always trying to please people to the detriment of your own self and not really doing anything for yourself. So now that we have that kind of firmly established, you know, most of this podcast is going to be dedicated to, you know, what happens after here and your relationship that occurs after. So, um, what happened, uh, after this, when you started to date? Um, yeah, so you hit the nail on the head. Had a, uh, the perfect scenario um, foundation for becoming an extremely codependent, anxiously dependent, um, perfectionist. Like, ha- I was someone who had, I didn't realize this until I went through my relationship with my ex-husband, um, but I was 100% a people pleaser. I could not get my worth from myself at all. It had to be out. I outsourced my worth to everyone and everything around me. Um, so I had any relationship that I had, like in high school or later was, that was healthy. I, I did not like it. It made my skin crawl. I didn't like the person. I would always like be with them for like two months and then be like, yeah, I don't like this. Um, and then I found one person who I knew in high school, and then I ended up moving in with him after high school. Um, This is not my ex-husband, but this is one of my longer relationships. That relationship was really toxic, and then I got out of it um, and kind of dated. And once I got out of that relationship, I ended up meeting my ex-husband. So I met him through Tinder, actually. 
And I, going to meet him, I didn't really want to because you couldn't really tell what he looked like in his pictures. And I was just like, had dated so much that I was like, well, whatever, I'll just do it. And it'll probably end up just being a friendship and that's fine. So I ended up meeting up with him. And our first date was like in the mountains, like perfect scenario because I loved outdoors. And that was where I had worked at the time. And so did he. And so we met up and we went on this little hike and hung out at this river. And we were there for like eight or nine hours, I think, just talking. And it was in my brain, like perfect case scenario. It was, he was this good looking dude. He had a job. He had his own house. Um, he had um, a nice truck, like just all these things. And then we had a lot of stuff in common about how we viewed the world and what we didn't want in a relationship. And so, but both he and I had recently gotten out of relationship, toxic relationships. So instead of that being a red flag to me and me, I, I should have been single and tried to do the work. I didn't have the mental capacity really. And I don't think I really knew that it takes a lot of work on yourself to go through shadow work and childhood trauma. So, um, he ended up texting me right after the date. Like I had such a great time. I want to hang out with you again. And after that, everything seemed like fate between he and I, our work schedules were the exact same. So we had the exact same days off and we work jobs where your days off are not Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or Saturday, Sunday. They're random in the week, depending on who can work other days. So he, um, he and I had the same days off. Um, everything just kind of seemed to work. Like there was this one time where he and I were both talking on the phone and he was way off in the wilderness somewhere. And I was, um, near my house and we both were just talking outside on the phone and we both looked up at the same time and we both were like, Oh my God, a shooting star. So it just seemed like all these kind of cosmic things were happening and I ignored every single red flag. So he would talk very poorly about his ex-girlfriend and tell me how crazy she was, how psycho she was. And, and then he would love bomb me. So he would just tell me, what every girl wants to hear, like, oh, my gosh, I've waited for you my whole life. I remember um, dreaming about someone like you. You're perfect. You're this, you're that, and totally put me on a pedestal, which, based on my childhood, like we talked about, that was exactly what I thought I needed in my life. I was like, look at all my worth I'm getting from this person who's telling me all these great things about me. Um, So I totally fell for it. It was the epitome of love bombing. He told me he loved me probably one month after we met. Um, and I was just so like excited about it because there was this good looking dude who was in love with me and saw this life with me already after one month. And like, and we couldn't really hang out that often because he was gone. It was during the summer. So we only hung out once every other week at that point. Um, so we ended up getting engaged four months after meeting each other, um, we went on this road trip and I remember the night, the exact night that we got engaged, um, we were in a hotel and I was scrolling through Instagram on my phone and I was just looking at some girl that I had known from high school and I didn't really know my ex very well at this point. So I was like a little bit ashamed cause he kind of tried to look over my shoulder and I was like, Oh, this is a little embarrassing. Like, 
I'm Instagram stalking somebody. And so I just canceled it out on my phone. And he was like, what were you doing? And I kind of panicked and I was like, ah, it's nothing like I, nothing. And he got so angry with me and he was like, you're really not going to tell me. And it immediately went into, are you cheating on me? Like, what are you doing? What are you hiding? Um, and so I just like, I didn't know what to do. And at this point, obviously both of us were very immature. I just took the ring off that he had just given me that day and he got so upset and angry. And then it just turned into like, not what you want the day that you get engaged. And, um, then I ended up being the one apologizing for it. And, um, after that we got married one month later. So we got married five months after we met. Um, we just went to a county courthouse without our family. Um, we had one, a witness that we didn't even know. Um, neither families were completely stoked on it, but they weren't like really upset or anything. Um, At this point, are you still thinking, oh, there are, oh, there's these little small things that might be getting in the way, but nothing really big has happened as far as feeling that you have been abused yet? Yes, um, exactly. And it all really started <clears throat> right after we got married. And <clears throat> after we got married, that was Christmas time, New Year's, he ended up he, we had dirt bikes, we had a big property. And so he was riding one of his dirt bikes and he hit a berm and he put his leg straight out. And so he hurt his back really bad. And he already had a bad back because of his work. Um, but he hurt his back really bad. And after that, that was, that's kind of the time frame, at least in my brain of how I see where everything kind of switched. Um, and maybe in 2020 hindsight, it didn't really switch. It just, it got progressively worse, but it was like putting a frog in hot water or like he, the way this happened, the abuse happened was very slowly over time where my brain just kept justifying it and justifying it and having the childhood that I did, it seemed okay to me. Um, so it turned, I ended up starting to have panic attacks all the time. I thought I was having um, I thought I had blood pressure problems. Sometimes it felt like I was having a heart attack. Um, and I just thought that that was just kind of how I was getting older and that was just what happened. Um, and so that was freaking me out. I've always been a very small person. Like I'm tall, but I've never really been able to gain weight. I could not gain weight in that relationship at all. Um, I couldn't eat enough to gain weight. Like I just could not gain weight. I had people asking me all the time if I had an eating disorder. Um, I was in school at this time also. So we were in a long distance relationship for a lot of our marriage because I was finishing my bachelor's degree. Um, and so that made his jealousy issues worse because I was not home with him. Um, and then we would just fight all the time. And I didn't even have that with my ex before him. Um, sometimes it was every single day and I kept a journal for a very short amount of time, which has been 
really great. Like if, if you believe you're in a relationship with a narcissist or someone who's or an abusive relationship and you can't get out of it, like I highly recommend keeping a journal if you can keep it safe from them. Um, because it will help you when you get out of the relationship, it will help you stay out of the relationship because that journal really helped me at the end of like being able to look back at exactly what I wrote and giving me a reality check. Cause it's so easy at the end to be like, Oh, well, we have all these great memories though. And sometimes he was really nice and like, you can talk yourself out of it. So being able to look in this journal that I wrote. Things like, you know, I had the volume on the TV at level seven. I could barely hear it from where I was sitting, yet he thought it was extremely loud and too loud. It was annoying him in the other room, and he just rages, type of things like that. Yes, and then also writing how you felt in that moment. Mm-hmm. So, so, so how, would you, feel, would, how write, would you feel in these moments? Um, when we would – so we would argue he would – bring up something that was so random that I never did or that his ex did, but he was projecting it on me and he would just, he would go from zero to a hundred in half a second of like, we were totally fine and having a good time. And then I would say something that he felt threatened by and he would just start raging and screaming and throwing things. Um, And so I would write in my journal, like, almost like poetry, I guess, but a lot of it was like, I can't live this way. I hate myself right now. Is this going to be the rest of my life? Like, why am I doing this to myself? Like, I mean, I was definitely talking down on myself, but it was, that was how I felt. I was like, there was such a difference. It was like cognitive dissonance. My research for school is, um, has a lot to do with women and domestic violence. Meanwhile, I'm living in a relationship that's full of domestic violence. Um, And so I would just write exactly what I said, that just how am I doing this? I hate myself. This person has made me hate myself. I don't recognize who I am anymore. Um, And he would wake me up at two in the, we would fight at nighttime and then I would, he would finally leave me alone so I could go to sleep. And then he would wake me up in the middle of the night screaming at me, just screaming at the top of his lungs at me. And I had work the next day and sometimes he had work the next day. Um, and the first time that he was physical with me, I mean, he would throw things, but when it actually ended up like hurting me, um, we had argued about something again. And all these arguments were so trivial that I don't even remember what they were over because anything would set him off. Um, so he, we were arguing and I kept trying to go to different rooms to get away from him. Cause I, I was in therapy at this point because I thought it was my fault. So I was in my own therapy and my therapist was like, well, like take, try taking a time out, leave the situation. And so I would try to do that and I would go to, um, another room and he would always follow me and open the door and still keep screaming at me. And like chased me down so I couldn't get away from him. And so I went into the bathroom and I had the door closed. Like the lock didn't really work. And so I was like bracing myself against the door so he couldn't open it. And so he knew that I was behind the door because he was trying to open it and he couldn't. And so he smashed 
the door. He was a strong person. He smashed the door open knowing I was behind it, and I was slammed into the towel rack that was behind the door. And um, I ended up, I was crying, and then I just collapsed on the ground because he had hit me so hard, like, with the door. And when I was sitting on the ground, the door was open and he was standing there. And he looked at me and I was like, you just slammed the door into me. I just hit the towel rack. And he was like, yeah, play the victim like you always do. And he walked away. And then he, and he threw a towel at me as he walked away. Um, Cause that was all that was next to him. Um, so that was the first time. So and, with, with, um, with that being the first time, did you recognize that he was reversing it onto you, telling you that you were the victim? Did you believe that? Or were did you think you were kind of crazy and questioning the reality of the situation? Or did your therapist help you realize that you were not crazy because you were already seeing a therapist at this point? Um, I think still because of how I was raised and then because this was – at least how my brain took it, it was a slowly um, developing situation. I still kind of felt like it was my fault and like, how could I do better? I knew part of me, it was very half and half, um, almost like the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other. I knew that what he was doing was wrong, but I also like didn't at the same time. And it was such a weird place to be in. And I think the part of me that was in denial about it was the part that like loved him, which I, looking back at it, I don't believe it was love, but the part of me that like got all my worth from him and stuff, like I viewed it as love. Um, I loved him so much. And then after he would do things like this, I mean, it's just the common dynamic of this relationship he would love bomb me. I would get cards, flowers, huge apologies. And he was very eloquent um, with his words. And he would be so upset and be like, I, I know I should not have done that. I'm so ashamed of it. And like he would, at least from the outside, he was like beating himself up for doing it. Like he would tell me that he was like beating himself up for doing it. Um, looking back at it. I don't think that he cared at all, but like in the moment, I totally believed like, okay, he'll change. Like we all say. Um, so I really believed that he would change. And again, I had been raised Catholic, even though I didn't practice anymore. I was like, when you marry someone, you stay with them forever. So I was going to do whatever it took to make it work. And he would make it seem like he was going to do whatever it would take also. Was there any honeymoon so, period after those types of situations, the love bombing, just to give you a little bit of like a, a breath uh, for a little bit of time until things happened again? Or did it go straight back into it? There would be um, a honeymoon time um, in the first. So we were only married for two years. In the first year, there would be a honeymoon period. Um Definitely after things like that happened. Um, but the second year, it was pretty much like would just go right back to the way that it was. At, that, at that point, he probably in his mind was the pattern of love bombing and the breather has happened. I already know that you're going to forgive me. So, it, you know, 
probably in year two in in his mind, it was like, I don't even have to do this anymore. I can just can like just go right into it. Oh yeah. He totally knew that I was going to forgive him. And we would have this pattern that was very predictable by the second year. And at this point, my therapist had given me the book, Why Does He Do That? So a book about narcissists, Mm -hmm. um, which just tells you about, you know, like the telltale signs of a narcissist or an abusive uh, partner. And so I had that book. So at this point, I, I had figured out it was about one year in. I had figured out he is um, abusive. He's either a narcissist or he has borderline personality disorder, um, something like that. And at this point, it was just a game of like survival and me in complete denial that this was not going to ever work out and that he was never going to change. And I had at this point confided in people about the abuse. And it was really a lot of my family just trying to, or my friends just like not trying to um, step on my toes. So like trying to tell me what I should do, but also trying to not tell me what to do because they didn't want me to turn around and get upset with them. So it was very, just this very big up and down all the time. Um, but it sounds like you're clear, then, you are clear of what's happening, and in your mind, you're probably figuring out how do I navigate this to a conclusion. Where is it going? And and figuring out a map is that kind of what was happening inside your mind, or no? Yeah, and it was again, it was this half and half thing. It was I knew I needed to leave this relationship, but this other half was like. I cannot live without this person. Okay. I am so in love with this person. I will never find anybody as good as them. Like it, it was, and it was very frustrating and heartbreaking for me because ultimately if my relationship failed, then I was a failure. That's what I felt. Um, so that had to do with it. And then just the, the love bombing and then the life that we had, like we had our own house, we had our dog, we had our cats, we had this huge property. I could work where I wanted to work. He could work where he wanted to work. And it was just like, it was the life I had always wanted. Cause my mom got married young, had kids young. So that was what I thought I wanted. And, um, I also didn't want that taken away from me. Um, so it was this huge mental battle that I had with myself. So your per, your per, I, your perfectionism that was created mm-hmm. when you were younger is driving you in a lot of way a lot a big way here. Yeah, a hundred percent. Because I was like, oh look, I have this good looking guy, and like my life from the outside looks picture perfect, and um, exactly. And then again, I was just sourcing. I by the end of this relationship, I was getting all my self worth from him. I did not get any from myself at all. It was literally just coming from this person. He was feeding me. And if you give that to someone, you also give them the power to take it away. And so he he was in control of me, basically. He could give me my worth, but he could also take it away. Um, and there were other situations where um, he dented my car one morning with his hand um, because he got upset with me. He would trap me in the house. Um, one night he trapped me in the house, like physically holding me. He stole my car keys. He stole my phone and we lived on 20 acres in the middle of nowhere. So I couldn't like yell and get help from anybody. And if he took my phone, 
I didn't have any way to reach anybody. Um, and he would throw my uniform for work all over the, the house. So then the next day I stayed at a hotel one night, um, cause I finally got out of the house and, um, he argued with me the whole way there, like over the phone. And it was always my fault until like he would sleep on it or something. Then he would apologize. Um, but I didn't ever bring it into work. I didn't tell anybody at work at all. Um, and one time he was on a fire and I had brought up getting divorced and he and I weren't talking and he called his sister, his older sister, sister called me. Um, and she left a message saying we need to talk and I called her back and she said, so you and my ex need to stop talking while he's on this assignment. Cause I don't want anything happening to him. And I was like, did he tell you what happened? Like, did he tell you that he's smashed me into a wall and that he's dented my car and, um, all of these things that he did. And she was like, well, no, but, but you guys just need to stop talking and then we'll all three sit down and resolve it when he gets back. And so it was never like no one in his family seemed surprised when I told them about the abuse. They didn't um, explicitly say, well, well, it's fine, blah, 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 but they didn't hold him accountable at all and they were not surprised. And so at this point now I'm thinking his ex, that he always said was crazy and psycho. I'm like, you know what? I'm thinking she's not that psycho um, because the same thing was happening to me. And I started to kind of go crazy. Like I was like, I would start to kind of do crazy things or get jealous because that's what he was doing to me. And so my reality was just, there was so much gaslighting. My reality was not actual reality. Like I was like, I couldn't tell if I was doing something wrong or if I wasn't, I couldn't tell if I was getting mad for normal or correct reasons or if I wasn't. I just, I didn't even know which way was up anymore by the second year of this relationship. And you, and, might, you might have been um, a victim of reactive abuse where yes, uh-huh. you're reacting to uh, whatever he is doing to make it look like to yourself and other people possibly that you are the one that is crazy when in reality he's poking, poking the sleeping bear. Yes. And he would call his mom or his sister and I would listen to these phone calls like when we were fighting and he would tell them how crazy I was being or how I did this, this and that. And I would be listening and I would be like, oh my God, I didn't do any of those things. Like he would straight up make things up or he would tell them that I did something that he actually had done. And I was like, and I just had to listen to this. And I was like, how could you say that to these people? And then, so then they thought that I was crazy. And so then they started calling me crazy behind my back. And I called his mother one time because I had heard from his cousin that she was telling everyone that I was crazy. And I called her and I just asked her, I was like, you know, there's, I heard this and I don't know if it's true. So I wanted to ask you directly. And she was like, I would never say that. She's like, I maybe said the situation was crazy, but I would never, ever, ever say you were crazy. Never cross my heart. Hope to die. I would never say that. She also like my ex, a narcissist and an abusive person. Um, and so that became pretty clear year two of this relationship also. 
Abuse is a family affair. Narcissism, in my opinion, it's a family affair. And none of them hold each other accountable, and it's kind of this closed system. And I always felt like I didn't really fit in with his family, and now I realize why. It's because I just wasn't that way, and I didn't understand it. And they knew that I was – it was almost like I was a threat to their whole system because I would call it out. And um, it just ended up progressing like that. And then we kind of had this period of time, the last three months of that second year, where I kind of – I was at my rope's end um, because he – the arguing was every single day. I was having panic attacks all the time, like at least every other day where I just like couldn't breathe. I had to work out just to try to get my heart to feel normal. I had so much energy, like pent up energy. Um, and we, I finally was at that point. I thought where I was like, okay, this has to be done. I can't live this way anymore. I could see myself aging like in the mirror I couldn't gain weight. I was just wasting away. And um, so I had said that, like, I probably wanted to get divorced. By the time I was really firm on it, he had really, like, kept trying, like, no, I won't, no, I want to fix it. No, I want to, like, I can do this. We can do this. I promise you I will do anything for you. Just, again, love bombing. And... I just kind of knew it wasn't going to happen. And my therapist had told me it wasn't going to happen because she had sat down with both of us and he lied to her just the whole time. And then when I went back one-on-one with her, she was like, he lied to me the whole time. He's not going to change. Like she had finally gotten to her ropes then too, I think with me. And she was just like, it's not going to change. It's just not. I, I just kept like, I had, been living at my parents at this point because I just couldn't live with him anymore and um he would try to get me back and when I would say no he would you know throw a tantrum and fight with me he told me one night when it was raining he had put all my stuff outside and he said well you better come up and get it my parents house and our house was eight hours away from each other um and so it turns out that was a lie he didn't actually put my stuff outside it was a manipulative way to get me to go back home which I didn't. Um, and then, and about in January, things had mellowed out and I think I was getting a little scared of actually getting divorced. Um, so he went and filed the paperwork. Actually, he filed for divorce, even though he said he didn't want to, I told him to do it. So he did it. And then we were talking on the phone and he said, Hey, can I have one chance? Um, And I agreed for some reason. Um, I think I was really, really, really scared of getting divorced. Um, Even though we had already filed, you can always just go back and undo it. You just have to file another paper because it was just a dissolution. We had only been married for less than five years. So it was, we didn't need lawyers to get divorced or anything. And I gave him the chance and then... He, we had started some argument, I think. I had gotten kind of upset about something, so I called him. And suddenly he was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. And the, 
the tides had totally changed. Like it had been him for three months or two months trying to get it to work, trying to get me back, trying to get me back. And like narcissists do, because he didn't have any power at that point, I had the power. Um, And I kind of knew that also. Um, And then by the time that I was like, you know what? Okay. After two months, I was like, all right, let's try this one more time. He immediately like calls me and is like, nope, I don't want to do it anymore. I'm, I'm keeping the divorce filed. I'm not, I don't want to be married to you. Come get your stuff. And I was just like, what, How, what just happened? Like, how did this, it got so flipped on its head in like literally a matter of, I don't know, 24 hours. And he had just absolutely was just like, I, nope, I don't want to be with you anymore. And I was like, how did this go from what it was to this in this short amount of time? And so then it turned into he had the power and then I was trying to um, make the marriage work and I was trying to get him to um, stop the divorce and all of this stuff. And that just rocked my world. I just, because I had the person who gave me all my self-worth took it all away and he was leaving me. And I was like, I was the one that was leaving and now you are. And um, we, um, I ended up driving up there. Um, well, for everyone who's listening, for everyone who's listening to finally be in a position where you're confident in feeling you're making the right decision and that you've stood up to this, it takes a lot to get to that point after being in it for so long. And then for a reverse psychology kind of situation to happen where you're in this not grace period, but a, a nice little period of, even though it was very brief for you to then kind of have your mind switch back to the way it was and then have it flip back on you. I mean, that is, it's deliberate and it just throws you so back, um, as far as being a confident person, feeling like you're the one kind of doing this going forward, it, 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 you know, you might have taken 10 steps, but that one move on his end might have thrown you back like 30 or 40, 50 steps as far as who you are as a person, your healing, if you're crazy, because now you're on your, your back foot and um, it's just it's not a fun place to be. No, and that was the we've been talking about love bombing and gaslighting. That was his discard. That was the moment where he was like, this girl, I finally have the power now. This girl is not, he, I proved to him that I'm not going to be submissive to him anymore because I kept that power for so long. He knew that he was not going to be able to get his supply from me anymore. And so once I didn't serve a purpose for him anymore, he discarded me. And that was the moment that he discarded me. Um, was he seeing anyone? That's where looking back at it, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yes. Um, when we were on the phone and when he said, Nope, I don't want to be with you anymore. I was like, I know he's found, I just, you just know sometimes like I just knew he had found someone else or someone else had been interested in him. And so we both agreed at that point. I convinced him. I was like, can we just like take space for like a week and then can you call me and just like see where you're at? And he was like, yeah, that's fine. So we didn't talk. 
He called me when I was at school. He knew my class schedule. He called me right before I walked into class. Um, and that, and he acted, he played dumb like he didn't know. He very well knew when I was in school. Um, so he called me and was like, we need to talk. I was like, I have class. And he's like, oh, okay, never mind. Just call me later um, to manipulate. And I was like, no, like, what? Why are you calling me? Let's do this now. And he's like, I thought about it and I don't want to be with you anymore. Like, I'm, we're just going to stay divorced. He did not care one inch about me. And I was so dumbfounded. I could not believe that this person who had gone so far to marry me and say, I want to be with you for the rest of my life, literally flipped a switch and did not care about me at all. Like as far as I was, he was concerned, I probably could have gotten hit by a bus that night. He would not have cared. Um, so I went home and I got the divorce papers in the mail at that point. And I remember sitting at the kitchen table and this was, a little more than a year ago, I sat at the kitchen table just with my mom and I was just crying with my head on the table, signing my divorce papers, just like, okay, well, this is like where my life ends. That's what I thought. I was like, this is it. This is the end of my life. Like there's, I have no self-worth. I'm back living with my parents. I'm, I don't know like what my plan is really for work. I didn't think that I would ever like, find anybody else nor was did I think it was a possibility of um you know actually enjoying my own company and like being able to be single because I hadn't been single really since like 2013 um and so I was so beside myself um the divorce was horrific um he would call me all the time regarding taxes or um, my dog or something and just be so disgusting and nasty to me and tell me how much he hated me. And after that, he tried to call me two months ago or a month ago. I didn't answer. He didn't leave a message. Um, but since that point, I've stayed extremely no contact. I know that he's dating someone else. The hardest thing for me about that has been um, just remembering like, because my ego wants to say, well, oh, what is she doing that you couldn't do? Why can she make it work and you couldn't? And what I need to remember is, um, just for my own sake, is she's, I guarantee, and I will never know, but I guarantee she's not doing anything different. And because he hasn't done any work on himself, he is just, he has this slot for a woman in his life and he is just cycling women out of it. And the same exact thing will happen again. And it's upsetting for me because he chooses good women um, and really just drags them, good vulnerable women and just drags them through his dirt. Um, but I've been no contact ever since. Um, and what have and you been working on in the aftermath of everything? So what this is a good, um, my favorite part of my story um, when I was sitting, like I told you, when I was sitting at the kitchen table signing divorce papers, I remember having an epiphany of like, okay, my world can end now. Um, and this is, and, or, and I can just not fix anything and just keep, 
doing the same old patterns with men, or I can do this work that I've heard people talk about, like working on yourself, which never made sense to me. And I was like, I could try it and see if it'll work. And I was like, well, I'm at rock bottom right now because I'm early 20s and I'm divorced and I don't really have anything going for me. I'm living at home, so I guess I might as well try. And so that was my mentality was I didn't really have any other option. Um, And rock bottom is such a great place to start because you really have nothing to lose. So what I started doing was going through Instagram, actually. I found so many coaches and psychologists, and it's free, obviously, because it's Instagram. Um, And so I started, I followed Mark Groves and Nicola Perra and um, um, I forget what her name is, but Mindful LMFT. And I just started following them and immersing myself in posts about self-worth and reparenting and shadow work and trauma work. And I started immersing myself in podcasts, um, simultaneously podcasts about um, working on your self-worth and podcasts about narcissist recovery just because I needed some help with um I needed someone or something to confirm the reality that I had just been through at the same time that I was doing this work. Um, So I did workshops that these people provided. I started journaling. I started meditating. I mean, I really just went, when I do something, I go all out. This was no exception. Um, So I just went all in on self-help and I, it was all the time I was, saving screenshots of these quotes that I liked on my phone. Um, And I was really, really trying to just like get back to or find who I was like at my core because it had been lost probably my whole life, but definitely in this relationship. Um, I ended up taking a road trip by myself to New Mexico um, during the winter. And I went snowboarding, which I was always too afraid to do. I went skydiving, which I was always too afraid to do, which I know this is like an eat, pray, love type thing. but um. No, but, in, <laughs> so, in, in, you know, your whole life you've been living an identity that technically wasn't your true identity. So now you're really discovering who you are. Exactly. And I was trying to prove to myself, I was trying to force myself to prove to myself that I could be fine without being in a relationship. Um and without trying to, again, outsource my self-worth. And I went on this road trip, and it was it was scary, but it was great at the same time. I really, um, that was a good catalyst to all the self-work also. Um, and my summer ended up being wonderful. I had more friends this summer than I've ever had in my entire life. Um, I had more experiences. I hiked more. I did things both by myself and with friends than I've ever done. And I really realized that the work I was doing was working when I was at work and things that I used to take personally, I no longer took personally. And situations I used to handle in a certain way, I no longer handled them that way. Um, I wasn't so angry anymore. My panic attacks stopped happening right when I signed those divorce papers. Um, And I remember one time, because it's a very, 
a difficult process, especially when you're starting doing this self-work stuff. Um, at the beginning, it's so hard because you have to be really patient. It's not like a, in 10 days, you can do this and have full self-worth. It takes a long time. Um, and I remember the highs were really high. Like when I would feel good, it was great. But then you kind of beat yourself up when you have days that you don't feel so good. And I talked to this person who I had that was a life coach for me for a little bit. And I remember calling him on a bad day. And I was like, how, I was like, how am I ever going to be single? Like, how am I ever going to be okay and without somebody? I just, I didn't think that it was possible. And he was just like, you can, and you will. And I promise you. And I was like, what? Like he just him saying that. And with his, the confidence he had, um, I couldn't even believe I was like, what? Like, Oh, okay. And so that really helped me just get out of the funk. And, um, I never thought that where I am today compared to a year ago would be possible. It was out of the realm realm of possibility for me because I also hadn't really seen people like that because my mom was codependent. So was my dad. So I never knew that it was a possibility to be able to be single and happy with yourself and to thrive. And I didn't know that once you did that, the people you allow into your life, both relationships and like platonic stuff, um, those people start drastically changing. I have way different friends than I had a year ago. I have way more friends than I had a year ago. I have different, um, in the dating realm, when you really do the inner work, I don't get people who are narcissistic talking to me anymore. As far as I'm concerned, I'm pretty sure I just completely turn them off because I don't even, no one approaches me that has any red flags like what my ex did anymore even though soon after we got divorced, that was kind of what I was seeing when I was dating. So that showed, that told me that I still had work to do. Um, at this point, um, I am, I enjoy being single a lot. I've learned so much about myself and healed. So hurt people, hurt people, healed people, heal people. That's something that, um, Mark Grove said. And it's so true that like, if you're hurt, you really kind of cause damage around you. Once you start healing, you really start helping people around you. And I've had people come up to me kind of randomly um, two weeks ago. And this woman was like, I'm in this horrible place, blah, blah, blah. Can you show me your resources and what you did? Um, and so it's really like you become helpful to other people once you do this work. And I never thought I would get to this point in a million years. And I still am beside myself about it because I can sit in a room by myself for the first time in my life and I'm okay with sitting with myself and I'm okay with going on trips by myself and hiking by myself. And of course, humans are wired for connection. And I'm not saying that I never get lonely without someone, um, without a friend or without a significant other. There will be times when I do get lonely but I think that's normal, but it's not this overcoming, like I need to find someone or find something to numb what I'm feeling right now. Um, so I've learned to 
work through my emotions and like let them sit there for a minute and almost like, you know, sit and um, have a conversation with them. Well, there's something, um, there's something to be said about having a sense of community. And even though you might not be uh, with the people in the community at that time, you still have the feeling that they are there with you. So being by yourself and doing things by yourself and recharging yourself, um, isn't, it's just, it's an important thing to do. I mean, not everyone has that ability to do that, especially if you have children and, you know, being able to kind of get away. But for a lot of us out there, myself as well, being able to have time by myself is something important, even though I do have a good sense of community and I know that I am loved and I know I have people to support me around me, but uh, getting that community and feeling that you're part of uh, a community that's a healthy community is a big step, uh, I find personally, as far as creating a base for yourself uh, in healing. Yeah, and I'm a big believer now just because I've lived it. I'm not saying this out of, you know, thin air. Once you start doing the work and start doing things that you love doing, like if you love hiking and you start hiking or if you love, I don't know, playing chess or something and you start doing that, you will find people who align with you. And I firmly believe that um, once you start stepping into your worth and making decisions that are aligned with what you actually want. You find these people. And the biggest thing I started doing was I started saying to myself before I made a decision, I would say, if I loved myself enough, what would I do? What would I choose? And that has changed my entire life. Because when you say that to yourself, it really gives you clarity. You become way less indecisive, way less indecisive because when you're trying to choose between two jobs or something. And you're like, if I loved myself enough, if I thought I was good enough, which one would I choose? And by making those decisions, that's how you step into your worth. Because I was always like, how do you even do this? And it didn't make sense. Because you can't just tell yourself, I'm good enough, so now I'll feel good enough. It doesn't work that way. But once you start making decisions, you're training your brain to trust yourself. You're training your brain to believe you're good enough. And that's how you get to the point where you actually like decisions become easier. You don't really need to ask yourself that question anymore. If I love myself enough, what would I do? Because you do at that point. So the biggest thing I learned was making decisions, even if it's scary. um, And it's very scary, especially when you're starting this, but making decisions that are in alignment with what I really want with my life. And once that relationship was done and once I started doing the work, I started aligning with really good people and friends, um, really good like people to go on dates with. Um, I ended up leaving that job that I was at because it was, I realized, especially this past summer that I was not being treated the way I deserved to be treated. And I remember saying, if I stay in the situation, it's me subconsciously telling myself that my worth is very low. So I decided to just take a risk and take a leap. And I had always wanted to do another job. And I was too scared to do it this whole time for years. 
And I finally told myself, like, you know what? You have to let go to make room for something better for yourself. And I let go of that toxic job, and I started working towards what I really wanted to do. And lo and behold, it I, I got what I wanted. I have the job that I want. Um, I'm going to be done with my master's degree in a few months. I have all these friends that I can reach out to that reach out to me and just, you know, ask how I am. I ask how they are. I've never been a bridesmaid before and I'm going to be a bridesmaid in October. Like there's so your life opens up to so many possibilities when you start telling yourself and you start um, acting on the belief that you're enough. Um, And the reason I was in that relationship with my ex is because I never believed I was good enough. I, and I tell people that my divorce was my simultaneously my best and worst experience of my entire life. And I'm so, it's so weird a year later to be like, ah, that's my divorce is the thing I'm the most grateful for. Like, and I don't believe I'm a victim anymore because I, my life's better than it's ever been. It's a bummer for humans that we kind of have to get, a lot of us have to get to rock bottom for us to you know, pick ourselves up. Um, but it was what needed to happen for me. And I don't think everyone has to get to rock bottom to, you know, pick themselves up and start doing um, self-work. I don't think you have to, but I think um, a lot of times that's just kind of what it takes and that's what it took for me. And I just can't, believe where I'm sitting today and that my life is just great and I'm attracting such different people into my life and I'm dating someone right now who I wouldn't have ever believed I was worthy of a year ago or five years ago and um, also being able to like know that if a relationship doesn't work out my world doesn't end because I'm not putting my self-worth in somebody else anymore it's insane how it all just kind of falls together and you realize that something you thought was the worst experience of your life that was, you know, go, that was like the end of your world ends up being the best thing that ever happened. Um, but I really believe that it's possible for anybody because I did it and I, I am a very, um, I'm a skeptic. Um, and that's just an understatement. Um, And all these resources like Instagram and like your podcast and all of these things, they're accessible to everybody and they're free. And through finding these different things, you find other people who are like them. So like you said, it's this community. And even though they're not physically around you, it's still out there. And so you see people that are like you. Um, And that was the most helpful thing for me also was just seeing that there are other people like on your podcast. There are other people that have been through what I've been through. For some reason, firefighters are very popular in our system. <laughs> Doesn't surprise me. Um. So, you know, I've listened to your story today, and you had so many interesting one-liners. Like, I'm going to be using a lot of your one-liners for the Instagram um, because so many amazing things really popped out of your mouth. You, you've really been an, ins- this is an inspiration. Like the way you've taken this 
negative and been able to work on yourself and create a new life for yourself and a life where you see endless possibilities. And it's an inspiration. And I, I just want to thank you for being on the show and sharing your story today. And if you have any one last thing you want to say to everyone out there, what would it be? Um, just what I've been saying. And, um, maybe if there's, um, women or men who are out there who just feel like they're never going to find somebody or they're never going to get this job that they want. I, I'm telling you from the bottom of my heart that you can, and that it's possible. And even if you have to be patient, if you step into your worth and if you align with exactly what you want and don't try to talk yourself out of it, you will get the life that you want. You will get anything that you want and it's possible to turn your it's possible to go from being a victim of your circumstances to being in control and being powerful in your circumstances. If I did it, anybody could do it. <laughs> well, thank you for being with us today, for sharing your story and for everyone out there listening. I hope you have a good night. <laughs>